Thank you for listening to Made to Be, a podcast exploring the surprising professional paths of extraordinary women in business. I'm Kristen Berman, co-founder and CEO of Philly Made Creative, a marketing and media production agency. Listen as I facilitate powerful conversations with women who are masters of their crafts, learn about their journeys and just what it took to become who they were made to be. People think about their careers like, oh, what's that next job title I'm going to have? And I don't really think about it that way. I think about um, what is it, what are the experiences I want to have in my career? Um, and how can I take all the stuff I've done throughout my career and use it to help me get to that next thing and ultimately to that end goal? Confidence is a funny thing. Some people believe that we're just born with it. Others think that it can be taught to anybody. No matter what side of the nature versus nurture debate you're on, one thing can be said for sure. Leadership is a muscle that has to get flexed often and practiced with good technique. My guest today is the master of her domain, which involves process improvement and customer awareness. I just love tomato soup, rich and red, tastes good too. But in my heart, I know it's best, the way I make it, not like the rest. A drop of fresh cream is all it takes, watch it swirl and dissipate. Watch it swirl and dissipate, I just love tomato soup. (laughs) All right, welcome everyone. Today, I want to welcome Roma McCaig with Campbell Soup Company. She is the Vice President of Procurement Business Operations and Strategy. Roma, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Kristen. I want to get in uh, starting with what is it that you do here at Campbell's to introduce our guests to what exactly VP of Procurement Business uh, operations and strategy actually does. Yeah. So um, if you think about uh, Campbell's being a large food and beverage manufacturer, um, there's a lot of stuff we actually have to buy in order to make those products for our consumers. Um, we spend nearly $6 billion a year on goods and services, and a lot of that goes into our finished products. So my job is to make sure that the processes and the systems all operate in a way where we can efficiently do that. So things like performance management, process management, um, the technology that we use, actually running the sourcing events, so things like an electronic auction or a request for proposal, um, as well as bringing in all the necessary analytics to support um, the work that we do. Wow. So you've been here for... Uh, a little over two years now. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what has been one of your greatest accomplishments since you've been here? Oh, gosh. I would say probably one of the things that I'm most proud of is um, bringing in a new way of working, which is called robotic process automation. Um, so in our shared services, we have a lot of work that can be done um, in a more automated fashion, things that are much more manual that don't need to be. So I incubated um, the technology to actually create bots to automate certain work. And within that time frame, we got six bots out in production doing work for people um, so they could spend their time on more value-added work. Robotics is all the rage right now, especially in manufacturing. What does that really look like for a return for Campbell's? Yeah, so for us, the way we look at it is really, um, it's freeing up people's time to do more value-added work. So if you are creating the same report 
every week and it's taking two, three hours of your time every week, but you're going through the same motions to do it, why do you personally need to do it? Why can't you script a bot to do it for you? And then you're just checking it at the end to make sure that everything turned out the way it was supposed to. Then you can be using that time to be working on process improvement work or a project that you were you know, you could never get around to, things like that. So I also think that people have the sense of that robots are, they look like a human being, <laughs> but they are automated. Yep. Is that the type of robot that you're incorporating? Bots are really a sexy word for just a script. It's essentially, it's a piece of software, right? So if you're really good at Microsoft Excel, um, which I would say I'm average in Microsoft Excel. But if you're exceptional in Microsoft Excel, you know how to create macros. Um, so essentially build in rules for things to happen. A bot is taking a macro to a whole nother level and basically taking your process that you would do to say transfer one da data from one thing to another and it's writing a script that says this is every step I'm going to manually take to do this and I want you to do it for me. So you can't see the bot. It's not, you know, it doesn't have like arms and legs and it's not going to serve you up a cup of coffee or anything. Um, but <laughs> it's actually a really cool tool. And if you want to see, watch it at work, you're basically going to watch um, superhuman speed of data transfer happening between systems. So how did you get that started here? Do you have a background in robotics or is this on your project management side? My background is really more around process improvement and, um, and, and, and really finding new ways to do things better, more efficiently. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the shared services space, which is where robotics, um, or in this case we would call RPA, robotic process automation, really kind of came to life um, in terms of finding new ways to be efficient. And so when I got here, our leader of shared services was really interested in the concept of RPA. So my team, part of my team was responsible for technology enablement. So we wrote the case to, to do a proof of concept proved that out and then moved into pilot phase, um, really took kind of a, um, I want to say a scrappy um, kind of grassroots approach to getting it done. Not a lot of investment, not a lot of people, um, but people who were passionate about doing things differently. So we really used that opportunity to prove it out um, and showcase the work and get a lot of support behind it. Great. So why don't you bring us back? How did you get into this? So what is your background in and how did you get to this place? So I'm actually kind of in my second career. Um, I started my career in advertising and marketing um, and moved into the corporate side doing more um, corporate communications, executive communications, and ultimately large change communications. And what I found was throughout my career, even though I was kind of running the gamut of the communications discipline, I would find myself attracted to transformation opportunities, large change, driving a different way of thinking, a different way of working. And um, I got to a point in my career where I said, you know what, I really want communications and change management to be a skill and not my job. So I decided to pursue um, more around operations and operational excellence. Uh, got my MBA and um, had the opportunity to launch shared services at a large healthcare organization in the U.S. And from there, it just kind of 
uh, it, it just took off. Um, my work was really focused on um, influencing people to look at working in different ways, um, really redesigning how work was structured, how it got done, um, and I did that in a number of environments. Ultimately, I came to Campbell's to work within our global shared services organization to drive operations and continuous improvement across all our shared services. And then today I am here in procurement, standing up um, capabilities around procurement operations, which includes process, performance, policy, technology, all those things that really you kind of learn to appreciate in a shared services environment. You know, continuous improvement is is something that I think we all sort of look for in our lives. And and <clears throat> how do you incorporate that in your life and and also in the culture here? Yeah. So um, what I found is continuous improvement is really a way to kind of like kind of like chip away at something versus large transformation. I think large transformation can um, intimidate people, and they're natural. You know. Um, reactors kick in to say, you know what, I don't have time for that, not interested in that. So the way we look at continuous improvement is like, what are the things that, the small things that you can do to continuously make something better? In my personal life, that is, um, you know, always looking for different ways that we do things at home um, that can be more efficiently. I mean, things like how you load a dishwasher to, you know, how you manage your finances. Um, you know, I used to be the... Um, I used to manage our finances with a checkbook register, a paper checkbook register, and then my husband convinced me that, you know what, there's this thing called Quicken and Mint that, you know, can allow you to more easily get all that information in real time and kind of actually predict the future and see where you may be headed. So, um, so take that to work. Um, really what I'm focused on is breaking down very complex situations into small manageable parts and that's how I look at continuous improvement it's like okay we can't bite off the whole elephant here so what are the small pieces that if we do this incrementally we're going to look back and go oh my gosh look how far we've come look at how much we've accomplished so that's really my approach to everything I do here is looking for the small things that can get be done quickly versus the large change that's going to take months years to get done you're listening to made to be a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by philly made creative we hope you're enjoying this episode if you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest please email made to be at phillymadecreative.com i love that because i think when when people are looking at a new task or the large transformation they often get uh, I know I do, fearful of like, oh my goodness, this is going to be so much, this is going to take forever. But the continuous improvement of looking at like the little things, the smaller milestones, the more manageable things, you, you experience success along the way. Um, I bet that that was uh, a part of when you made your transition from advertising and marketing into more of the operations side. So what did that really take for you to make that shift? The first thing it took was more just um, self-awareness, knowing that I had um, a new goal, right, and, and accepting that, that it was okay to kind of change my path, but not not throw away everything I'd done up until that point. The second piece was having um, a leader who was a mentor, a sponsor, who could really get behind me and support me on this new path. Um, so I was very fortunate that I had a, um, 
I had a sponsor who gave me the opportunity to really do something different in the organization, saw the capability in me and said, you know what, let's, let's open up the door. Let's give you some additional responsibilities that are kind of outside of the box that's been drawn for you and continue to build on that. So he started out by um, kind of giving me new assignments that a typical communicator wouldn't be doing. Um, like I wrote the shared services strategy for the organization. I wrote the playbook on how to implement our operating model, things like that. Um, and then took it to the point where he sponsored um, the time I needed to go get my MBA while I was also working. Um, so I, th I would say that one, it's having that self-awareness of where you're wanting to go and knowing that it's okay to change your path. And two is finding um, a person or persons who can support you on that journey. So if you can, can you take us back to that relationship and to that first couple of weeks or even month of that transition? What was that like for you? I kind of realized it as it was happening versus knowing that that's what I wanted to do and building a plan and then going and doing it. It was kind of, you know, it evolved as it was happening. And um, where it started was in a car conversation. We were driving back from a speaking event that he was at that I had, I was supporting him on. And, and we started talking about, you know, what my career goals were. And I felt very comfortable that we had a very trusting relationship that I could be honest with him and say, you know what, I'm actually kind of thinking about a change. And rather than him thinking, oh, well, this person's gonna leave the company, so I'm not gonna support them on that, he, you know, immediately started brainstorming with me and thinking about, well, what can you do to start moving towards that change? And he started making those things happen. So it was, one, we had the trust, um, and it was in a less formal situation. We're in a car crossing the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, and we're having this conversation versus, you know, me setting up time on his calendar and coming to his office and saying, hey, I'm thinking about changing my career. So it just happened at the right time, and, you know, kind of like the stars were all aligned, I guess, in terms of opening the door for that conversation. And looking back in hindsight, what were those key decisions that you made or those things that you had to change within yourself to even bring that conversation up? I know that some of the people who may be listening to this, they may be considering that. So what advice do you have for them? So I think one of the things that um, I became more deliberate about, and this was before I even had gotten really concrete about this is a change that I want to make. It was just thinking about how I showed up differently. So I had throughout my career been on leadership teams and supporting senior executives um, in large organizations. Um, and I always felt like if I'm gonna, if I have a seat at that table, I better earn it every day. Um, and so, yes, I was the communicator at the table, but when I was engaged in a conversation with vice presidents and senior vice presidents and general managers, I was a business person. And so I was bringing everything I had to that conversation to help them make business decisions. And so what I realized was, was I was already thinking the way that the next me would need to be thinking, and I just needed to make it more formal. I needed to build the credibility around it. So people already saw the ability in me because I was already demonstrating it. And then I just needed to kind of build the formal lines around it. Have you always been a leader in your life? 
You know, I, I haven't always seen myself that way. I think it's easier to look back and go, oh, yeah, you know, versus in the moment saying, yes, I'm a leader, you know, and I'm going to be a leader. And, um, and in fact, I don't even think the term leadership was really brought into kind of my vernacular till I was probably 20 years into my career. Um, it was more of just, you know, how I wanted to sh show up, how I wanted to be respected and how I wanted to be seen. Um, but if I look back, I mean, even all the way back to, gosh, elementary school, right, high school, college, I mean, I can find very specific situations where I was demonstrating a leadership quality. Um, so it's, I think it's one of those things where it's not part of the conscious mind till later in your career and it all of a sudden becomes a book that you're reading or a class you're going through or something. But, um, but I do think that that way of thinking can be um, kind of be sitting in the subconscious for a lot longer than you think. So what's one of your earliest memories? You said elementary school. Do you have a moment that you remember that you go to? I think about, um, you know, the fact that I'm female um, and um, a diverse female, and I, I never really let that get in my way. I never really, um, I actually never really acknowledged that that was um, a barrier to being able to do anything. So in elementary school, um, I was very interested in school productions, plays, things like that. So we were doing a Christmas carol, and I wanted the lead role. So I auditioned for Ebenezer Scrooge. And I never thought, you know, oh, I need to be Mrs. Cratchit, or I need to be, you know, it's like, I'm going to be the lead in this role, so I'm going to be Scrooge. Um, I did a knockout job as Ebenezer um, in my audition, but at the end of the day, the gender biases were, you know, kind of rose to the top, and I was cast as Mrs. Cratchit. Um, but it, it didn't stop me from wanting to, you know, to pursue that going forward. So what was some of the uh, conversations around you? Did you have your parents supporting you in that or, or the, uh, the theater teacher supporting you in that? From what I can recall, because that was many decades ago, it feels <laughs> like, um, nobody ever said no. Nobody ever said you can't do that. So sometimes support just shows up in um, the fact that someone isn't standing in your way. Right, and, um, and my parents always taught me to be independent, to, um, you know, to pursue whatever interested me, um, to not see things as barriers. Um, and so I, it was just kind of the way I always thought. Um, I didn't have once anyone behind me saying, oh, you should go try out for Scrooge, because you'd make a great Scrooge. I just thought, well, if I want to be the lead in this play, I'm going to be Scrooge. So, um, and, and the teachers were very supportive as well. I mean, you know, nobody wanted to say, no, you can't do that. Um, at the end of the day, you know, they cast, you know, the students who they thought would best play certain roles. And so, you know, I got Mrs. Cratchit, and I was fine with that because Mrs. Cratchit was still an important role. But I was proud that I, um, that I had the courage to go for something that wasn't as obvious. Can you remember what your peers said about that and what it was like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they probably thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I don't think I remember. <laughs> so so let's, let's jump ahead a little bit. 
into into maybe middle of your career when maybe you've just started getting into the leadership teams. How long did it take you to really make your mark, and what did that look like? Yeah, so I um, I think it was when I was making my transition from kind of being in the advertising and marketing space to going over to executive communications. And um, it, it was, so I was hired by a chief information officer as his communications leader, and I had never done this job before. Um, so, you know, I'm coming in with anxiety, and um, and here I am sitting in a room with a CIO and his, you know, business information officers and a VP of HR and, you know, a VP of finance, and here I am with, you know, nine years of career experience under my belt. So it was very nervous. Um, it, it again came down to having um, a leader who believed in you and who opened the door for you. Um, so, you know, I, I can't say that I didn't go without my missteps at the beginning or being a little overzealous or, you know, or, or saying or doing things that weren't necessarily, you know, kind of appropriate or at the right level for that group. But I always had the support of the leaders around me to help guide me and, um, and, and help me kind of find that space. Um, and I think what really kind of led to that was they saw an earnest um, uh, desire to please, to support and to do whatever it took. So, um, you know, I approach things without ego. Um, I approach things with other people's best interests at heart. Um, what's the right thing to do versus what's the best thing for me? Um, and so, and I think people see that. And so in turn, they're willing to help me as well and support me. You're listening to Made to Be, a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by Philly Made Creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest, please email madetobe at phillymadecreative.com. And do you have an example of maybe one of those missteps that you took that was just like, bring us to that moment and what you were feeling in that moment? So, um... I think one of the very first things I did was um, I came out with this like huge, like multi-page marketing plan that I wanted to walk through with the CIO, and I wanted had all these questions I wanted him to answer, and and um, and he's like, "Time out, hang on, we don't <laughs> need to go there," you know. It's like let's just have a conversation. Let me just tell you what's on my mind. And then you can go take all that and go do your magic behind the scenes versus, because I was used to working in a client environment where you have things like a strategic creative brief and you have a plan and you want to sit down with the client and make sure that you've, you know, you've answered every single question. And I come over to the corporate side and it's not that way. So, um, but again, it was, you know, he saw in me that, you know, the desire to please and the desire to help him be successful so he turned around and made sure that he could help me be successful so what was what was the shift in your relationship with him like after that oh I mean very trusting very um I would say a lot of kind of my um my walls came down 
and I allowed him to see my vulnerabilities. Um, he, um, you know, and with that, he also gave me opportunities too to do things I'd never done before. Um, a lot of what I learned early in my career was in that role because he was willing to take chances with me. He was willing to let me try things that I had never done before. Um, and so, you know, with that, it was just a much more trusting relationship to the point where even after I left that, he called me 11 years later and said, hey, I've got this new gig and I'd love to work together again. So um, it, you know, it was definitely um, kind of the start, I would say, of a really great um, path forward. So you're talking to, is this person somebody you would consider a mentor or sponsor? Absolutely. Somebody I still call today when I've got, you know, kind of career decisions to make or things I'm contemplating. And even though we're on opposite sides of the country and sometimes he's not even in the country, um, I can text him and he'll respond immediately. How important is it, do you think, having that sponsorship or that mentorship within either within an organization or somebody in your industry to help guide you? I think it's 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 critical. Um, one is you need someone who's got a different set of eyes on your career um, to help you see things that you may not see yourself, um, see things about yourself, but also kind of point out what's going on in the world. Um, for me, I've chosen folks who are further along in their career than me to be mentors and sponsors. And they may not be people who would ever give me a job. Like they, they wouldn't ever necessarily be another employer, but they know enough about me um, to, to ask the right questions, to force me to dig deeper, to be very honest with me and give me real feedback that I need to hear. It may not be pleasant to hear, but I need to hear. Um, and who would also be willing to make a phone call on my behalf. How would you recommend somebody go about either building that relationship or starting a relationship like that? Yeah, so um, I would say it's not going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, there needs to be a way to build trust between the two of you. There needs to be a natural connection. So um, it can't be fabricated. It can't be based on superficial things. Um, there has to be something that's drawn the two of you together. You've you know, had to work together. You've gone through a challenge together. You've reported to this person. They've been your teacher you know, whatever it might be, but there needs to be some natural connection that goes deeper than just, oh, we know each other. Um, I think that's the starting point. And the second is it's, um, you know, being willing to open up to them, be honest, show your vulnerabilities, um, and being willing to give without asking for things in return. So part of it is, um, you know, bringing a, a sense of selflessness to the, to the relationship and saying, you know what, I'm here for you. Um, and then your hope is that, you know, they're going to feel the same way about you. But if they don't, they don't. And you can't turn that, you know, into a sponsorship unless they actually want to be part of that. Did you ever formalize that relationship in any way? You know, um, I've never said you're my mentor or you're my sponsor. No, absolutely not. Um, cause I don't want to put labels on it. Um, but those people know who they are, and they know what they mean to me. Um, and it is, um, it is through actions more than just you know putting labels, right? It's through 
my willingness to kind of go above and beyond for them and in turn their willingness to kind of go above and beyond for me. Was there a point um, where you sort of knew that you needed to find people that were either further along in their careers that you thought to yourself? Were you conscious of that? Um, You know, I mean, I certainly have had enough opportunities where it's kind of put front and center and it's given as a piece of advice in a book you've read or in a leadership class you've taken or things like that. But I would say throughout my life, um, starting with even high school, when, you know, relying on my guidance counselor, you know, it's like I've always... I've, I've valued the opportunity to have somebody who is um, more seasoned, further along in their career, has what I would think is probably more wisdom than me at that point in time, um, to provide some level of mentorship. Coming back to today and where you are now, do you ever experience imposter syndrome? We're making a little bit of a shift, but do you ever experience imposter syndrome? So tell me what you mean by that. Well, imposter syndrome, such as you're you're at this level in business. Do you ever think to yourself, how did I get here? Or is this really where I should be? Oh, well, yes. If you mean, are you ever insecure and feel like you don't have a, you, you haven't earned that seat at the table? Absolutely. All the time. Um, and that is constantly keeping myself in check. Um, I will, and it typically happens when I'm given a new challenge and it's something I've never done before. And the, my reaction in the moment is I'm not qualified to do this. Like, why are they looking at me? I'm going to completely fail. They're going to realize I'm a fraud. And then I sleep on it and I wake up the next day and I'm like, oh, here's how I'm going to attack this. I'm like, hang on. I was exactly the right person to take this on. I was, you know, now I know why they thought of me. But for that moment in time, it's, you know, that brief moment in time, you certainly can feel like, oh, hang on. They're going to realize that, you know, I'm not all that they think I am. Um, What gets me beyond that is kind of staying in touch with what all I've done and what I've learned. Um, You know, I really feel like a new challenge that may be given to me is going to be addressed based on all of the experiences I've had in the past. So I, you know, it's like, okay, let me go into the toolbox and see what have I done before? What have I experienced before that may help me address this? And what am I going to learn that's new that I can use on the next situation? Um, but yeah, sure, imposter syndrome, I think it's just a natural um, you know, reaction that people have to something that's new and unknown. So how do you stop yourself from going down that rabbit hole? Um, well, the first thing I do is I accept the fact that I alone am not going to be the person who can get this situation solved. Um, I identify people who can help. I identify people who may have knowledge that I need right now, um, and I lean into them. Um, so sometimes it requires delegation, but really requires more than anything is um, the willingness to go and learn from other people quickly and say, hey, if you were going to do this, how would you go about this? Or who might know something about this? Or, you know, things like that. So I, 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 I move quickly beyond the insecurity to, okay, well, how am I going to solve this? So who can help me solve this? Um, And knowing that it's just another challenge, 
um, and that, you know, this too shall pass and we will get through this. It sounds like you are aware of the resources and the tools that you have in your toolbox. And rather than getting stuck inside of the insecurity, you quickly move into action and you grab your toolbox and go. Is that inaccurate? Yeah, yeah. Or I, I realize there's a tool I'm missing and I go look for it. That's great. And I think that um, for the people that are listening, they have these tools that maybe they haven't taken a, a, a self audit or um, they haven't done that, that work to actually see what are these things that I have accomplished and those things that I can do. Do you do anything that's a, a, either a, a regular uh, assessment of yourself or do you look at your, your life every year or anything like that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is super simple and <laughs> it's going to sound pretty inconsequential, but I, it doesn't matter how happy I am in a job. I always make sure my LinkedIn profile is current um, because it is the, it's the easiest thing for me to stay on top of who I am and what I've accomplished. And the reason why I think a LinkedIn profile is more important than a resume is you're actually doing more storytelling in social media. Right? You have an opportunity to make a brand statement about yourself. You have an opportunity to create an elevator pitch. Like, you know, if someone has 30 seconds to read about you, what do you want them to take away? And then you have an opportunity to say, here's all the things I've accomplished throughout my career. Here are, all, here, you know, here are the things I find interesting. It's, it's a really great way for people to have insight into you. So if you stay on top of it, revisiting your LinkedIn profile every six months should take more than, no more than 30 minutes. I will say we are we are big fans of LinkedIn. We are not sponsored by LinkedIn, but <laughs> but I, I love that that uh, tip that you just gave for people. I think sometimes people view LinkedIn as their resume, and it really is something different. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually find my LinkedIn profile to be so much more important than my resume. The resume is the thing that HR needs to put in their system to say, you know, yes, this person, you know, has applied for this job. But the story that you want to share is beyond what your resume has to tell people. And I feel like LinkedIn is a great platform to allow you to do that. It opens doors. It's not going to close them. It's up to you to close those doors, um, but it will certainly open doors for you. Great. Well, thank you for that piece of advice. Um, Again, I'm not sponsored by LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's see. Can you remember a time when you failed to achieve something that was really important to you? Yeah, so there have been times when there have, um, there have been roles that I've just been so excited about and really passionate about and thought, oh, this would be the great next thing. And one of those was actually working for my mentor who um, gave me the opportunity to move out of communications and into operations. He had um, taken on a new leadership role in the organization and was looking for um, a chief of staff someone to run his operations uh, team. And I threw my hat in for it. Um, And I was not selected. Um, But the way he handled it and the way he coached me on it um, was, you know, was, was precious. It was valuable. It was, you know, it was, he was willing to say, you know what, you would be amazing 
but I'm not going to select you for this, and here's why. And in that here's why, he gave me very specific feedback that I could then go act on. I could go get prepared for that role for the future. That's a great piece of advice. So what is next for you? Where are you, where are you going next in your career? What are some goals that you have? So, um, you know, people think about their careers like, oh, what's that next job title I'm going to have? And I don't really think about it that way. I think about um, what is it, what are the experiences I want to have in my career? Um, and how can I take all the stuff I've done throughout my career and use it to help me get to that next thing and ultimately to that end goal? Um so for me, that is really driving large transformation. It is, and it's going to show up in a number of ways. It could be a chief transformation officer. It could be a chief operating officer. It could be a head of HR. You name it. Um, so for me, it is where, where can I take everything I've ever done throughout my career and help an organization either evolve, mature, um, you know, go move to that next stage of its life cycle where um, my work across industries and across functions would be of value. So, Roma, thank you so much. Do you have any final words of wisdom or pieces of advice that you can give to women listening to this? Uh, you know, I would say really spend time thinking about your personal brand um, and, and don't make it a one-time affair. Um, you know, invest the time in yourself as you would in anything else. Um, and in, in thinking about your personal brand, it, there's so much that goes into it. There go, it's, it's kind of, you know, where do you want to be? You know, ultimately, what are you, what are you striving for? Where, who are you going to be when you feel like, I've made it, I've done it, I've accomplished everything I want to do? You may never get there, but at least you've got a vision. Um, who's your network? Right. And your network is made up of mentors. It's made up of sponsors. It's, you know, so and who's missing from your network? Um, you know, is your younger sister who used to drive who used to drive you crazy growing up an important piece of your network? You know, so is your college roommate an important part of your network? Those are things to think about. Um, and then I would say, you know, really just, as I said, invest in you um, and Find those opportunities that allow you to continue to grow and, and continue to hit that, you know, that ultimate goal that makes you feel like you've done everything you possibly could or want to do. Roma, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing what it took for you to become what you were made to be. I just love tomato soup. Rich and red tastes good too. Made to Be is a production of Philly Made Creative. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this episode, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or Anchor, and stay tuned for future episodes. Just love tomato soup.